With your students, how do you um, – I, I interviewed Terry Lynn Carrington, and she brought your name up because you're part of that um, – I can't remember the exact committee name at Berkeley, but it's the global global project at Berkeley. Yeah. Right, and and uh, where you co- create different uh, alternative spaces and opportunities for students, or your students, to play. And I just, you know, as far as stopping before you're, well, what did Miles say? Stop before you're finished. Stop before you're done. Stop before you're done. Um, do do you find uh, like rhythm sections, drummers, bass players that um, under like they can just fill out the rest of the of the t- of the tune or the solo. The, the way well, of course, it, de- it depends on their skills and their expertise, and in some cases, experience. But I've found that if you do leave a little space, I mean, we're not getting too technical. If you just drop the last few bars of a of a chorus, if it's a tune that has a form, and let the rhythm section do something, they will inevitably, maybe not right away, maybe not that night, <laughs> but they will inevitably think to themselves, oh. He wants us to do something. Okay, here we go. Instead of just pure accompaniment, which is the usual role, the rhythm section behind the horn play. Talking to Dave Liebman here on the Jake Feinberg Show. And, um, you know, I wanted to talk to you about um, Stan Getz because not in the sense that I know you didn't necessarily collaborate with him or play with him a lot, but but I'm more interested in the idea of uh, when you were young, how did you view him as a, a mentor? I mean, you didn't play, you didn't, you don't play the same, you play different horns, but I mean, can you talk about how you viewed Stan Getz from your earliest career? Well, I, I'll be honest with you, I didn't appreciate it too much. I f- sort of thought it was a little uh, uh, lacking energy. Uh, I mean, he was obviously very lyrical, and anybody could tell that. But it, I mean, I'm, you know, I had Coltrane on my mind, so. If I hadn't had Coltrane on my mind during the 60s when I was growing, uh, quite possibly I would have been more attracted to Stan. But with the complete, apparently, because it's not necessarily 100% true, but with the complete opposite side of the pole playing that that instrument, I was so drawn to train that almost anybody else was pretty much, unless they were in that manner, they didn't really uh, make an impression upon me. Stan was, for me, an acquired taste. Uh, over the years, appreciating his talents, his, of course, his sound, which is always remarkable, but uh, his melodic uh, concept and the fact that he was so melodic no matter what. And he played some very challenging music. He didn't just stay with the old stuff. He, you know, he had Chikori in the band. He had, you know, Richie Byrack, and these guys were bringing tunes that were not the norm of the period that Stan came up in. And he handled them because he had an amazing ear. He had, a, he was a double threat because he could read and he had a perfect ear so that's you know usually somebody like Chet Baker has a good ear but he didn't read really so this right. guy could read you know and so it meant that he could look at a tune he could see the chord changes and understand it uh, and then eventually of course pretty quickly hear it and know what to do with it but I it took me again to summarize it took me a minute to really appreciate him and of course you know <laughs> there is a prejudice or maybe not so much in this generation but there's a, there was a prejudice that if somebody got a hit record, there must be something wrong. <laughs> <laughs> no, I... so honest because there is this... I mean, I was talking to a dear friend of mine, Henry the Skipper Franklin, bass player out in California, and he... I mean, the minute I told him I was on this project, he's like, yeah, I was, I was more of a Coltrane guy. So there was yeah. this evident... Div- I mean, I... And I can... Just getting into this stuff, but what I wanted to... to um 
you know, Billy Hart, when I interviewed him, I mean, the thing about the hit record, you know, Stan was the only dude to win a Grammy that was an improvisational yep. tune, right, for a long time. Yep. yep. So, yep. so you, but, but you, even in the late 60s, it, he lost, he got, he took flack amongst his, uh, amongst the, his musician peers because he won a, he got a hit record. Well, the Bossa Nova was huge, but it was, you know, it was kind of a sleepy music, you know, <laughs> and it, you know, when you're young, yeah. like I was 20 years old, and that, you know, my late teens at the early 20s, you know, you're attracted to energy. You're not quite ready for, like, a really uh, introspective, I don't want to say it's introspective, but you're not ready for a, you know, gentle, quiet approach to music. You know, you're ready to turn up to 11 and blast. And, of course, members of the 60s and rock and roll was on our mind as, he's, as well as jazz for my generation. So Stan sounded like he was, well, selling out. Actually, I mean that's what you know, with the with the bossa nova stuff uh, particularly, but you know he had had hits already. I mean he had look he had a hit early on in the late '40s with Woody, and that's what put him on the map in the first place. So he you know he was probably the mo one of the most famous and rewarded uh, in, in the popular in in the mind of the public of all the musicians. I mean he was like on the level of Duke Ellington or Sarah Vaughan certainly or Miles in his popularity and his ability to kind of find a new way or a hit record somehow all the time. I mean, the, the record Focus, which was an incredible record with the strings. I mean, Eddie Souter, yeah. Made the record, that made a big impression on everybody. Uh, you know, he was, uh, he was, he was equally as strong in the 60s. It's just that somebody like myself just didn't have whatever the patience or the knowledge to really appreciate him, you know. Now, I, there's a lot to be said for Stan being really maybe I read a paper, and I have it here. I don't know who wrote his doctoral thesis or master's or whatever. That Stan is really the prototype bebop tenor player of all time. I mean, we think of Dexter Gordon for tenor, you know, outside of Bird. We think of Dexter Gordon as really the prototype bebop player in the late 40s, early 50s. Which, the truth is, Stan really, uh, really um, developed the bebop language in technical, very technical ways. He was kind of the first real bebop player. And when you hear him in the records of Storyville, set from the early 50s where he's just completely burning. I mean, his time and his notes were just fantastic. So it took me a while to understand that. And, of course, last thing is, you know, the famous video now of Stan and Coltrane from uh, Germany with Oscar Peterson, and then they play a ballad. There was also in the press a vibe of white versus black. Coltrane is the true jazz, and, you know, Stan Getz is, uh, you know, whatever. You know, he's the hit maker and handsome and white and all that stuff. And then you watch that show, which is in the mid-60s or early 60s, and man, they, they're just playing so beautifully together. I mean, and, and Coltrane has, on paper or in an interview, you know, noted Stan and his effect and his influence and loved Stan. So uh, it was just a matter of maturity, and I certainly wasn't mature enough in the 60s to appreciate him. Do you think that, um, I mean, he came out of Tea Garden, uh, you know, he was already a junkie, like when he left Tea Garden's band and Woody Herman's band, the Four Brothers, uh, yeah. you, we talked last time about that subculture of jazz. It was essentially black music up through the seventies. Um, but at the same time, did you can like can you talk about this concept of when Stan was in the fifties and the sixties? I mean, you were not trusted if you weren't on heroin. I mean, if you weren't a, in jazz, is that is there is there truth to that? Because I mean, to me, it was well, the race thing was made up by journalists because Stan could have cared less about race he, or, or skin color. And like what you talk yeah. about this white black divide, but I mean, as far as at at, at at sixteen or seventeen, the guy was, I mean, he learned this from Tea Garden. He learned how to drink from Tea Garden. He learned how to bend his right arm, and he yeah. was, you know. But but I mean, that was 
were you not trusted if you weren't hooked on dope? Well, I I certainly can't talk about it because it's not my period. But you know, and I and I, I would I would say it's probably an exaggeration. I mean, but there wasn't a club. I mean, look, there are those who do and those who don't, and that's true in anything in life. There's those people who drive a car and those people who don't. <laughs> I mean, so you know, and you belong to one or the other, and then you're certainly going to identify or be friendly with those people who do what you do. So it was a you know a club of sort. Of sorts, I'm sure. I'm sure there's an attitude of like he's not with us. He's he's on the outside of it. And uh, in in my period, it was more like smoking pot, smoking on the you know on the gig or smoking for the gig. You know, you don't smoke. Oh, okay, that's cool, no problem. But you always suspected the guy wasn't on the same uh, wavelength as you were. You know, there was this kind of like us and them kind of vibe. So whether that existed with heroin, I can't I can't say that. But certainly, you know, when you belong to a certain belief, you know, anybody outside it is definitely a on the outside, it can't be. You know, that can't be ignored. You know. Did like uh, so you this this bossa stuff? It was like I totally understand. You were burning, and it was sleepy music. But can you talk about um, when you started to play love ballads or dance music, and maybe that's when you started to wake up to Stan's uh, playing? Well, not really. I mean, I was playing club dates from the time I was thirteen. You know, weddings and bar mitzvahs and things. You know, that's what I did on the weekends. And in the summers, I was in the hotel area in the Catskill Mountains, in, in, in the show band or in the lounge band. I mean, that's how I came up. And of course, in those days, the repertoire was not what we call top 40 now. It was standards. So you would be playing Sweet Georgia Brown or You and the Night in the Music uh, for a wedding. And then, you know, six hours later, a jam session, you might be playing the same tune. There was a common vocabulary until rock and roll really, you know, uh, really got much more influential by the late 60s. So, uh, I mean, I certainly played standards and everything like that. But again, I didn't really refer to Stan uh, too much in, in that period. I was going to say, because uh, you were alluding earlier, I really would love if you could email me or t tell me who wrote that thesis on uh, Stan being the prototypical bebop saxophone player. Hey, send me an email when we're done, and I'll answer I that. Will. I, I, know where, I, I know exactly where it is, and I'll just get the name. Cause, um, and, and it's, a, it, it's quite something, though. It's really, he, he traces the whole stuff. It's well, beautiful. no, because it's, you know, did you... Were you hip to the? Did you get off on the like the? There's a there's an album for musicians only with Dizzy and Sonny and Stan. I mean, he was really unbelievable. He was a card carrying bebopper. He really he could do it. Oh, uh, he was. No, that's his language. But he had the ability to be uh, maybe more melodic than most of the people of that era. And you tie that in with his sound, which is absolutely unique, one-of-a-kind. I mean, we could say it comes out of Lester Young and all that, but he, I mean, he had a sound that was absolutely, you know, like um, chocolate sauce, you know, I mean, uh, whipped cream. I mean, it was just so sweet and so beautiful, and of course, in ballads, it was most notable. Um, you couldn't negate his sound that was just from, like, it was otherworldly, almost, his tones, especially on ballads. How did um, your your friend Richie Byrack uh, uh, hang with Stan. I mean, do you, you talk about their relationship? I know they played a lot together, but Stan, listen, there was a Jekyll and Hyde quality to this cat, no doubt about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yep. He was very much like that, and everybody who worked with him will tell you that. And then he could, you know, be very negative about something you were doing, and then be kind of the, be the opposite of the day. You know, he was a, he was a, an emotional mess in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, he was up and down, and could be very friendly and very charming, and he could be a complete, you know, you know, completely a wicked cat. I mean, to, in, you know, the same guy, to, to the same person in 10 minutes. The stories are legendary, and it, he is known as, 
several personalities, Jekyll and Hyde, he was a Jekyll and Hyde personality. That's how he was looked upon by the guys. But remember, he used everybody. Everybody worked with him. Uh, his rhythm sections were, you know, a, a panorama of jazz in the 60s and 70s. And, uh, you know, and even further on, he had, I mean, he had everybody. He gave them work. He, he you know, he was a, Stan Getz worked all the time. So a lot has to be said for his uh, supporting the business. You know, these guys, you know, you don't, you don't just look at them as uh, great artists and all that, but they put people to work. Exactly. And he did. No, and, and I also, I mean, like, I don't know if you ever caught uh, this, this, but I mean, he he brought along, he like, he brought along young unknown cats like Billy Higgins at the time, Scott LaFaro. I mean, he, he just really, he was in the guts of the whole thing, I, you know, and he did, but I mean, did, 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 um, because you were younger, but, but in the, in the, when you started to come up, did you cross paths with him on, on bills? Did you, um, oh, yeah. So, well, first of all, my first record as a leader was in, done in Japan called First Visit, 73, when wow. I was there with Miles. Wow. And Stan and had Richie, Dave Holland, and Jack DeJeanette. And this was a late-night session organized by the Japanese, which they did a lot in those days. So I saw Stan that week. He even came in to set. We, we did another session that week uh, with uh, Abby Lincoln and Miles's the Japanese guys and now Foster and he came into the session you know him and Miles talked a little bit you know they certainly knew each other but you know he, I, he, he liked me because I was a Jewish saxophone player <laughs> so he, would, he would say oh yeah here's another Jewish saxophone player how you doing man so you know little, the little uh, interaction I had with him was you know casual and pleasant you know, oh like nothing deep gosh that's fun. wait the uh, <laughs> wait Miles Miles and him just said they knew each other well certainly I mean they, I mean it's just I think there's some discs with them playing together, and you know, I mean, these guys are all coming up at the same time. If you're coming up in the late 40s.